And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Father, thank you for your word, the beauty of it the power of the images and the depth of the truth of it that pierces into our souls. Thank you that it is living and active, dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, showing us, Lord, our thoughts and our intentions. Feed us now, teach us now with your holy word and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Maybe you're like me, but I just never understood Bruce Springsteen. Oh, so he's this guy that sings in this loud, grovelly kind of voice that you can't really understand the words to, mostly at the same pitch? That's cool. Oh, but he's got a saxophone player in his band, so, and a lot of other people that I really like like him, so maybe I should pay attention. And I have to tell you that I just didn't think much of the boss as he's, did you know that's his nickname, the boss? For those of you who are younger than me, Bruce Springsteen is an artist from uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey. I didn't think much of him, but when I first heard the album Nebraska, I was really taken. Because in Nebraska, you see, Bruce had made, I guess, 11, 12 songs of demos of just him in a four track. Tascam cassette recorder. And he made these demos to then take to the E Street Band so that then they could all learn the songs and make a great album. But Nebraska is very quiet. And all the sort of the glitter of the band had been stripped away. You see, when I thought of Bruce Springsteen, I thought of another album from the 80s, Born in the USA, 1984. You can think of the synthesizer. You think of all the radio hits. But because of all the noise of that album, I couldn't really get to the heart of what he was trying to say. So when I first heard Nebraska and listened to the songs and the stories and the characters in his songs, I was really overcome. And then, because our great public library has thousands of records, not just you know, records on file, but vinyl records on the fourth floor downtown, I checked out Born in the USA, and as I listened to it, I realized, oh, this is the same kind of stuff. Same great characters, same great songs, same great stories. And so I had this comparison, if you will, a really loud, overproduced, super 80s album, American Flag on the front, and then I had this other album from 1982, Nebraska, which was totally stripped down, 
but they were both saying the same thing. But the difference between the two drew me to the heart of what the boss has been trying to say all these years. And now, guess what? I'm a fan. I love it. I'm excited. I can't be turned that easily, though. Now, I bring that, all that up to, to say Jesus lifts up a comparison to us tonight in this what we call the Sermon on the Plain. It's different than the Sermon on the Mount because it's not on the Mount of Beatitudes per se, but the way Luke describes it, Jesus has just been praying all night. He's just called his disciples. I think my beard, my really manly, rugged beard is rubbing up against the microphone. Wow, did I say that out loud? Golly. Jesus has just prayed all night. He's called his 12. He's had presumably the 72 following him now. And out of that 72, he calls to himself 12 by name. And if you look in your Bible before this account, earlier in Luke chapter 6, Bartholomew is one of those disciples. And, and Luke says that he called them apostles. And so he calls these 12 to himself, and they're going to have a special mission. And now he comes down the mountain with them, these 12, in the people of Israel. And now this great multitude and crowd is around. Not only are there people who have been following him, presumably those 72, but there's also a crowd of people from Judea, Jerusalem, and Tyre, and Sidon. So these are Jews, these are Gentiles, a lot of people influenced by the Greek culture, and they're all here in this one place pressing in on him because they want to hear. And Luke says that he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, on these that have chosen to follow him, on these that last week we saw, not by coercion or because Jesus had his uh, foot on their neck telling him to follow them, but because they saw in him something winsome, something compelling, and they dropped their nets and they followed him. They followed Jesus when he said, push off into the deep, when they had just fished all night and no one fishes in the deep end, Jesus, but they trusted him. These are the ones to whom Jesus is talking, and here's what we're going to talk about tonight. First, I'm gonna tell you what he's not saying, okay? what Jesus is not saying. Secondly, I'm going to tell you what he is saying, just for clarity. Next, I want to draw your attention to another clarifying comparison. And lastly, I want you to see that all this is set in the context of our present and future hope. What he's not saying, what he is saying, another clarifying comparison in our present and future hope. Hope. So, in these Beatitudes and these woes, so notice that they're parallel. How many Beatitudes are there? Four. Four. Good. How many woes are there? There are four. And notice, what do you notice about them? The first Beatitude is, blessed are you, poor. And the first woe is what? Blessed, or woe to you who are rich. Okay. Let's get into it. What he's not saying is that your temporal circumstances determine your eternal destiny. Now, don't read, I'm not trying to give you too much in that word destiny, all right? I'm just using it as a word of, of, of which direction you're going, your trajectory. But hear me say this, your present temporal circumstances 
do not determine your eternal destiny. Everybody hear me on that? Circumstances. For instance, blessed are you who are poor. Different than Matthew's Beatitudes. Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke says poor. Notice all the poor people who have been faithful people to God. When the angel Gabriel went to Nazareth, he went to the poor girl Mary. She was not found in a palace. And Zechariah, who drew lots, even before that, who drew lots to, be, to appear before God's presence and to offer incense in the temple, his wife was barren. In this day, there's nothing poorer than not having children. These were poor people. And so these are the faithful poor. So Luke says, Luke quotes Jesus, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And we can't help but, but hear in that phrase, the kingdom of God. It's not just the kingdom of God right now. Because they would look around and say, well, what, what kingdom, Jesus? The kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that we find because we know the rest of the story, the kingdom that is already breaking in on us now. Blessed are you poor. Your temporal circumstances do not determine your eternal destiny because these aren't just poor people. Jesus isn't saying, if only you were poor, you'd be blessed. There are plenty of poor people who decided not to follow Jesus. There are plenty of poor people who have much animosity in their hearts towards those who are not poor. So don't hear what I'm not saying and don't hear what Jesus is not saying. This circumstance doesn't determine their eternal destiny. But in this sense, they are blessed because they are the faithful poor. Some commentators say maybe it's because they've left a certain way of life in order to follow Jesus, and so they, might, they may fall on financial hard times or dire straits. We think even of uh, Peter and James and John. When Jesus met them in this moment of encounter and spoke to them in the language that they knew in the context of their fishing, their passion, their toil, their work, and Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishers of men. They let go of their nets after the biggest commercial success of their business. Blessed are you, poor. Same goes for hungry. Just because people are hungry does not mean they are blessed. Jesus is drawing attention to these disciples who have followed him, who cannot satisfy every desire in the moment. Blessed are you who are hungry. Now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, we have this, this eschatological fulfillment sort of thing happening. Where we, Christians, living with the word of God to us and for us, being able to see the gospel, we who have the Holy Spirit in us, having the new covenant, our context of belief can see. We have the benefit of hindsight that this hunger will be fulfilled ultimately, palpably, beautifully in the kingdom that is coming. 
But the same goes for the woe. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Just because you have no desire for food does not mean that you are cursed. Your present circumstances do not determine your eternal destiny. Blessed are you who weep. That corresponds with woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Again, Jesus speaking to the fact that they're following him. And finally, blessed are you, a, a long one, a powerful one, and a warning that becomes really a dire prophecy. Blessed are you when people hate you and revile you, and when they exclude you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Hmm. Of all, the, of all these, that's the hard one for me because I'm such a people pleaser. But Jesus says, you're blessed in that moment. But does that mean that I'm automatically blessed if people hate and revile me? No, he's, there's a qualifier on account of the Son of Man. And that qualifier extends to all those, you who are poor because you follow me, you who are hungry because you follow me, you who weep now because you follow me. Now, remember that one weep because of all those that we experience as Christians in the United States of America, we're probably not hungry, maybe symbolically hungry. We're probably not poor, maybe poor in spirit like Matthew records Jesus saying. But I know for sure we weep. That's the one I identify with, so remember that. So that's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that your present circumstances, your temporal circumstances will determine your eternal destiny. What is he saying? He is saying, your temporal circumstances, as they relate to being my disciple, your temporal circumstances, as they relate to being my disciple, affect your present and future relationships, your present and future destiny. So because you're poor and following me, if I am the source of your hope and your strength, if you've put your trust in me, then one day yours will be the kingdom of God. Yet, even now, yours is the kingdom of God. But if you have riches that encumber your ability to follow me, Jesus says, then woe to you. Your temporal circumstances as they relate to being the disciple of Christ, affect your present and future destiny. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If we say to God, like the rich young man, we have no need of anything. We've done all this stuff, but we don't need anything. If we pretend that when Jesus said, look at the little children, don't hinder them as they come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was calling out the reality that children must receive. But if we say, I'm full, I have no need, I don't need to receive anything, then that determines not only our present reality, but our future destiny as it relates to being a disciple 
of Jesus. And lastly, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If we find ourselves like a chameleon, blending in with every environment around us in order to avoid being associated with our Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that all people speak well of us, then woe to us. Our temporal circumstances as they relate to being a disciple of Christ do affect our present and future destiny. So Jesus holds up the blessing and the woes. There's another comparison in today's readings that clarifies, if you will, this state of being. And it's found in Jeremiah 17. Turn to it in your bulletin or in your Bible or phone or whatever you got there. And we have these two realities. We have the reality of the cursed man. The cursed man looks like this. He's a dude who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Clearly, these are volitional choices that this person has made. He trusts in man. He makes flesh his strength. And not only that, but his heart turns away from the Lord. And so Jeremiah in this prophecy is saying, a person like that is like this, like a shrub in the desert and shall, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So what you're saying, Jeremiah, is that someone who can't trust God, who can't put their strength in God, and who desires only the things of the flesh, that's someone who will live a desolate existence. It's clarifying because Jesus has just said, well, some of these people who have all the stuff now, woe to you who are rich. Man, all the, the rich people have all this stuff now, though, the disciples may be of saying. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Jesus highlights that what we see may not be the reality that someone is living. Because Jeremiah hits the nail on the head, as does David in Psalm 1. Not so the wicked they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The blessed man lives, or excuse me, the cursed man lives in a desolate place. It marks not only his present reality, but it gives us an idea of where that person is headed except for the grace of God. So Jeremiah holds up this reality of cursing with the reality of blessedness. There it is again the state of being truly happy. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Ah, that sounds much better. I feel more relief there. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Hmm. Stop for a minute and just think about the image of a tree. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose strength is the Lord. He is like a tree. He's not a shrub. 
He's a tree planted by streams of water. All of a sudden we go from the deserts of Nevada to uh, this beautiful verdant landscape where there's a tree. Think about it. Think about when you see a beautiful green field, a river nearby, and a tree. Does that make you happy or sad? For most of us, it makes us happy. It's a reality of blessedness. It's a reality of goodness that God desires for us. And all it takes is to trust in the Lord, to make the Lord our strength. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. The greatest commodity, greatest natural element, water, this tree is close to it. So close that the tree in a hidden way sends its roots to the water. It's hidden. It can't be harmed. Nothing can deter the roots of the tree from going to the stream. But there's something afoot. The tree does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Hey, you disciples of Jesus, blessed you who are poor, who are hungry, you who are planted by streams of water, you whose roots are sent out to that stream, seasons of drought will come. Imagine the place that Jesus' disciples were in in this moment. It was not yet time for his exodus, as we'll hear in a couple of weeks, but they were about to go through some serious stuff. They followed their Savior all the way to Jerusalem, only to betray him, to leave him behind. And then after that day of Pentecost, a whole new era breaks in. But yet, almost all of those, except for Judas and John, will die as martyrs. They will die a blessed death. The seasons of drought were coming. Nevertheless, Jeremiah says, but the tree's not anxious when it comes. Now, I would, that's very aspirational for me because I know when seasons of drought come, heck, when a moment of drought comes, what happens to me? I can fall into anxiety, the inertia of brokenness. Remember that weeping? The inertia of the broken sinfulness all around us can drag me down. And then I get confused. And I've always wondered why verse 9 is in Jeremiah 17. What's with that? The heart is, I mean, I get it. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Desperately sick. That's NIV in me. Thanks, college. Why is that there, I thought to myself. And even as I studied and prayed this week, and I realized, I think, at least for us tonight, in the season of drought, what do we immediately do? We question Oh, wait, am I, well, hold on here. Am I really, am I really a blessed one? Am I really following Jesus? Or have I totally lost everything? 
Am I totally forgotten and lost? Have I committed one too many sins that the everlasting and infinite mercy of God cannot reach me? What did we just sing? Sin was strong. Jesus was stronger. Our shame is great, but Jesus, you're greater. And so Jeremiah is giving us a little heads up. Hey, guys, the heart is deceitful. It will confuse even you, the bearer of it. John writes in one of his epistles, he says, hey, guys, when your heart condemns you, we have one who is greater than our heart. It's going to happen. It's part of those internal boundaries. The book Boundaries has reminded me that I can be my own worst enemy, that I can have the most trouble with myself because of me. Because why? Because the heart is sick. It's deceitful. And it's in that moment of crisis that Jeremiah writes, but the Lord searches the heart. He searches the mind. It's in that moment of crisis and desperate need that says, that Jesus says, blessed are you who weep. for you shall laugh. Hmm. Augustine says about gaining wisdom. That weeping is necessary to it. Here we go. Crying and weeping is a requirement and laughter and joy the reward of wisdom. He said Luke wrote laughter to mean joy. And all of this is said in the context, friends, this, this sort of inner struggle that we have, because I know we have it. All of this is written to those who weep in the context of what St. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says simply this. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If we've believed in Christ only for the sake of this life, he says a verse before, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Shame on us. But Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean, the first fruits? Well, it means there's more coming after it. So instead of being like the wicked and like chaff that the wind drives away, we ourselves will be fruit that follows the resurrection of Christ. And yes, Jesus told us to put off into the deep. Yes, Jesus called us to drop our nets and follow him. Yes, Jesus asked to do many things for his name's sake. And we can be totally confused in the season of drought and totally anxious and even blind to the fruit that he's producing right in our midst. But Paul says there's a better fruit, a bigger fruit, a, a first fruit that far outweighs everything, and that's our Lord Jesus. He died and he was raised again. And blessed are you who weep because your hope is not only now. Remember, your present circumstances do not de determine your eternal destiny. But your present circumstances can be overcome in a way as you look forward to the hope, your eternal hope. Even now, though, that same hope of the resurrection breaks in on us. Do you know why we talk about the Holy Spirit? 
Because he is God, A, that's a good reason. Thanks, Jay. But B, he brings the kingdom of God in our midst. He is the rule and reign of God. And so that's why we pray for the Spirit of God to manifest himself in our midst so that kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the kingdom will everyone who has weeped for the sake of Christ, who has been hungry for the sake of Christ, who has been poor for the sake of Christ, who has lost their lives for the sake of Christ, will be fulfilled beyond all recognition, beyond all measurement. St. Paul writes it like this to the church of Ephesus. I want you to know Christ in your hearts by faith through the power of the Spirit so that his love may fill you beyond all measure. So that you can see how high, how wide, how long, and how deep is the love of Christ. And he finishes that prayer with this doxology, now to him who is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Guys, this is real life. This is reality. When Jesus pronounces those blessings and those woes, this is what he's calling his disciples into. And this is what we at St. Bartholomew's can step into. Let's pray. Jesus, you are great. Sin is great. The, the reality, the cosmic reality of sin is great and beyond repair except for you in your resurrection. Our shame is great, we confess it. Just take a moment quietly and offer to the Lord anything that you're ashamed of or you're afraid of or that you're weeping over now. Just picture Jesus on the side of that mountain, on that plain, and you're gonna offer him that thing that you're weeping over. And he takes it from you, and he has a huge smile on his face. That is what he lived for, died for, and was raised again, to take that from you. And now he says, set your hope in me. Now and for the future, there's a feast coming where everyone who wept will rejoice with shouts of joy. Now, Lord Jesus, we pray for those of us who are, who are really desperately weak, that by the power of your Spirit, you'd fill them with your strength. We thank you for loving us. Continue to feed us. Prepare us for that feast of one day when we're with you. In your name we pray. Amen.